Heavenly Father, we come to you again in the name of our Redeemer by the power of your Spirit that you have poured out upon your people. Lord, as we uh, reflect on uh, the book of Titus and the imperatives that Paul gives to his friend for the people, we pray, Lord, that your Spirit would be at work within us, that these imperatives would would come to us as well, and that we would feel their weight, that we might look to our Redeemer, and we might follow wherever He leads. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I didn't have alphabets this morning either, not because I don't like alphabets, there aren't too many cereals I don't like, but... I didn't have that. So I didn't have, you know, the, the gospel laid out in my cereal. Um, I actually had Rice Krispies, but again, the gospel wasn't laid out. But the reason I say that is because this morning we're beginning with Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Psalm 19 says, The heavens tell the glory of God, and their expanse declares the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night reveals knowledge, and night to night reveals knowledge. Now, I have to say that I agree with that, otherwise I wouldn't be welcomed back to preach again. But in all earnestness, I mean, this is an amazing reality. As we look at the world around us, the heavens, the earth, and all that they contain, it directs us to the Lord Jesus. It shows us that God is ruling and reigning. To Gary's point earlier, we see a design that points to the designer. How do we see that? How do we understand that? Well, we understand that the earth is 93 million miles away from the sun, give or take. But we also understand that 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 figure, roughly speaking, isn't good enough. What do I mean? Were we to be too close to the sun or too far from the sun, life wouldn't be possible. Or we could think about the air that we breathe. I mean, we talk about air and we talk about oxygen. We know we need oxygen to to live. But the air that we breathe in is kind of a a soup, a funny soup of gases. There's nitrogen, there's there's oxygen, there's carbon dioxide, there's carbon monoxide. There's a, a whole slew of things that we breathe in and out and we never even know. It turns out that the, the oxygen part, which is what we need for, for life, is about 21%. Any less than 20, we're in trouble. Any more than like 22 or 23, and a fun fact is none of us would survive a campfire because everything would catch fire and that would be the end of it, right? There would be no smokers because lighting a cigarette would mean you're gone, right? That, that's how precisely our world is tuned and there's more. We, we could look at, at physics, biology, chemistry. We could look at all manner of the sciences and see different examples of that design and the designer who made it. Beyond that, we could look at societies. And we see that societies make laws. Now, sometimes the laws are good and right and just, and other times they are not. But the point is, the very fact that a society has laws and is making laws and carries the expectation that we keep laws shows that there is a structure and an order to life. In fact, if a society didn't have laws, it's called anarchy and chaos. 
And, and I begin here today because we need to understand that all of these things direct us to the Lord and His purposes for us. That is to say that He has made the world and all it contains and He has rules for it. Now we could take an example and, and to kind of drive this point home and, and just let's look at the sixth commandment. Remember that's the one, thou shalt not murder, right? Now, be comforted, I've not murdered anyone. And I could stand here and I could say, you know, the fact that I haven't murdered anybody is, is evidence of my righteousness. See how righteous I am? Never killed anybody. Of course, you being a, a, a responsible congregation would, would direct me to the Lord Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount when he says what? If you're angry with your brother, you've, you're guilty before the, co- the court. And I could, you know, you, we respond by saying, well, I, I understand that. I also understand that because I believe in the Lord Jesus... My sins are forgiven, right? That's true. And in light of all of that, I still have not murdered anyone. Why? I mean, if if Jesus has forgiven me of my sins, whether it's my anger or murder or or whatever, why not? Well, we see even even here that that there's a purpose to the, the law. It's not the purpose that I say, I have not murdered anybody, so I'm righteous. Rather, the purpose of the law shows the depth of my sin, right? That's where we think about how many times I get angry at people or circumstances, and we see the depths of my sin. We see that the, the, the law of God restrains evil. We see that in the wider society as we, we pass laws against murdering. We see also that the law of God gives us a character of the Lord. It tells us what He likes, what He doesn't like. Turns out murdering is low in His approval uh, uh, ratings. So, I haven't murdered anybody, and I'm not going to murder someone. Why? Not because I want to be righteous for that fact, but rather because I know that that is pleasing to the Lord. I understand that the Lord Jesus has died to free me from sin. And yet I still seek to follow Him and obey Him. Not to prove my righteousness, but because I understand those actions are what the Lord desires. Now I begin this way because Titus 2 is a list of imperatives. The first ten verses are a list of commands for God's people. But Titus is not giving them this list of things to do so that they would be pleasing in God's eyes and so that that they would be righteous before God. Rather, Titus is giving them this list with the knowledge that the Lord Jesus has redeemed them. Now follow after Him. Let these things be an outworking of your faith in Christ. We'll see, Lord willing, that Titus is calling the Cretan people to these specific things so that God's name is glorified amongst the wider culture. So that the Cretan church can rightly 
push against the culture so that the Cretan church can be a witness to God's glory to that wider culture. We all now must hear Titus 2 and by the power of the Spirit working within us must do the same. Must follow after where the Lord has lead, where the Lord has led. We must, we must proclaim both by our words and by our deeds the commands of the Scripture. Why? Because it glorifies the Lord for the, the wider culture around us and serves as a testimony of who He is. Now, as Paul describes these characteristics in chapter 2, he describes them as the things fitting for sound doctrine. And he addresses five distinct groups of people. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and servants or slaves. And there are some things as we think about this that we could say, well, doesn't he do that in other books? And it's true, he does kind of uh, address relationships in other books of the Bible, but those are primarily between family members. Here he has in view groups of people like, say, the church. And you'll see that in these five groups, he's essentially covering everybody, right? And that they all have a place to play. And, And we'll see that there's both significant overlap with some of the commands that Paul gives, and there's some um, unique things, and we're going to look at those first. If we look at the the passage, we see in verse 2 that older men are called to be sound in faith and love and in perseverance. And as you hear that, you might be thinking, wait a second, don't faith and love but isn't it faith, hope, and love? Aren't those the three that go together? And it's true. Paul writes in, uh, to the Corinthian people, and he, and he talks about faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of those being love. But here in Titus, he switches out hope for perseverance. And we might say, well, why does he do that? And I think the answer is straightforward. Think about who he's talking to. Older men. Why is that significant? Older men, you know, statistically, they're, they're on the back half of their race. They're, they're, their lives are not going to grow, grow in youthfulness. So Paul, in calling the older men to perseverance, is saying, listen, we recognize that what lies ahead might not be dignified, might not be easy. But you're called, as you live life, to look to the Lord, to persevere in the faith, to to look for what will eventually be your homegoing. It's not easy, and it's difficult all all around. Death never is easy, but nonetheless, Paul calls older men to, to look with perseverance toward the end of their life. We see in the verses that follow, that Paul instructs older women not to be malicious gossips and not to be addicted to wine. Now, it could very well be um, that there was a bunch of drunken older women in Crete that were wandering the streets maliciously gossiping about everybody, but I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. I think Paul is is drawing on on a wider cultural phenomenon and that is to say a human culture phenomenon. 
Like with older men, we see that Paul gives this direction to older women. And I think what he's doing is he's highlighting the possible negative opportunities of being an empty nester. If, uh, you know, the glory of a young woman, as we'll see, is in her family and in the household, what do you do as that household changes over time? What do you do as children grow and move away or move out? Uh, We see that Paul here has, uh, both in this book and in Titus, um, the instruction that women should not be gossips. And we see that that might be an easy temptation to fall into. Not just for older ladies. We all need to be careful to make sure that gossip does not seep into our assembly. And we wonder, how does that happen? And one obvious example is, what, what is the line between godly communication and prayer for somebody and gossip reveling in the scandal of what has happened? That's a fine line. In fact, sometimes the sharing of information to one person is a cause for prayer and for another person is a cause to sin into, in, in the way of gossip. So we need to, to examine all of us, examine our hearts, and seek to, to understand why are we communicating what we're communicating? Is it for the salacious tidbit or is it for earnest prayer? Even more confusing, is it some mix of the two? But nonetheless, we see Paul here very directly calling for older women to not be malicious gossips and to not be enslaved to wine. Rather, they are to instruct younger women. Now, as we see this, they're to instruct younger women to love their their husbands, love their their children, um, but to be workers at home. And this then demands the question, well, do young women have to work at home? Are they, like, how does that work? And last week, as we kind of dug into Titus, we used 1 Timothy to help us kind of understand some of the context, and we're going to do the same today. Um, Paul, writing there in in 1 Timothy 5.13, is writing about widows, but also young widows, young women. And this is what he says. At the same time, they, that's the young widows, also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. So, in the Ephesian society, there apparently was a learned trait where at some point the, the younger women, would, particularly young widows, but younger women would be going from house to house, kind of giving a running commentary of the state of affairs. And Paul is saying, don't do that. In his letter to Timothy, he, he says, just this needs to stop. In his letter to Titus, what he does is he instructs older women to teach younger women so this doesn't come about in the first place. He then turns to young men as a group. They're to be sensible. And Titus in particular is to be an example of good deeds. In short, young men, Titus included, are to watch their actions so that they would be fitting, so that they would would give glory to God Note their actions are are what is in view here. Again, this is fitting to the stage of life. Young men 
out, doing, working, living, watch your actions. Make sure that they are a good example for Titus. Be uh, uh, sensible, young men. We see also that slaves are to be subject to their masters um, in every way, right? They're not supposed to steal from them, but they are supposed to please them. And, and were we to have more time this morning, we might look at um, slavery here as Paul is describing it and what our minds most naturally think of when we hear the word slavery. Um, we don't have time, but suffice it to say that uh, what we see here is that when the gospel comes to those who are enslaved, it does not, and, and to their masters, it does not free them automatically, but at the same time, there is a fundamental change between master and slave and the reason why they give and receive orders and the way they carry them out. Now, as we look at, at these various commands of the, the, to the various groups of people, there's significant overlap. Paul calls all of the Cretans to be self-controlled. Now, as you read through or followed through, you might not have seen the word self-controlled, depending on what translation you use. Uh, the New American Standard uses the word sensible, and that's fine insofar as it goes, but I think a more fitting word is self-controlled. So older men, be self-controlled. Yeah, uh, both older women and then teaching younger women, be self-controlled. Young men, be self-controlled. They're not to be a people ruled by their lusts and their passions, but rather they're to be a people who are ruled by the Lord and are able, by His Spirit, to follow where the Lord leads. As we understand this, we also are to be self-controlled. We're to know what is pleasing to the Lord and we are to humbly obey. Now, recognize that Paul is not giving these statements you know, kind of off the cuff, that he has a purpose for them. In fact, he's got three of them. In Titus 2.5, of, of speaking of the older men, the older women, and the younger women, he says, you know, you're to do all of these things so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And we, we understand this. If the gospel is true, and it is, it is to bring about the fact, the reality, that those who are in Christ are a new creation. Paul, in essence, here is saying, you need to live like it. And as you confess that you believe in Jesus, and as you live lives that reflect that, God's word is honored. When you don't, it's dishonored. We see in verse 8, uh, speaking of the young men and of Titus himself, the, the reason is so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And, and we remember that Titus is ministering against in, in the midst of opposition. There are those who don't agree with what he's saying. There are those who are upsetting whole households. And if he is to live as a poor example, or if he is to live without self-control, well then his opponents say, really? This is the life that he's calling you to? He's a heathen, right? And, and they use it against Titus and, and the church as a whole. And then you see, similarly, that when slaves are acting, they are to do so so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. In short, by our actions, 
as well as by our words, we provide a testimony to the culture around us. Now, as we think about Titus, we remember that the culture around him was best described as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, right? You have to wonder, how would Titus's words have meant anything? We would say perhaps the same thing about the day in which we live. How is it that the message of being self-controlled is going to be heard by our culture? Well, we need to reflect on Psalm 19. We need to remember that the same God who wrote the Scriptures and, and has told us of His redemption of us is the God who made all things. And they both point to Him. And they agree. No other religion, no other ideology, no other philosophy can say that. So what does that mean? If you're a proponent of Islam and you're trying to, to live Quranically, eventually what's going to happen is the instructions within the Quran are going to disagree with what the, the, the world tells us. Why? Because they weren't written by the same person. Right? As you look at philosophy or, 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 or any sort of ism, right, that we see in the world, same thing is going to happen. So it is true that, that self-control might not be the most persuasive topic in the short run, what we see is that over time, by our actions, by our words, as we are faithful to the Lord, present a witness to our culture. Though not maybe embraced at the moment, we pray in time that God's Spirit would be at work helping them understand that their thoughts, their beliefs, and their actions are discordant. Now, how then are we able to do all of this? How can we possibly follow these commands that Paul gives to Titus? Self-control is pretty miserable if we think about it in those basic terms. How are we to do that? How can I possibly have the strength to say, uh, my body wants to go this way, or my mind wants to go this way, or I, I really want to say this thing, but I know I shouldn't. How can we do that? Well, there are two answers, and they're related. Uh, and the first one, and the greatest one, actually is reflected in the pyramid right in front of me. Today's Pentecost, the day where we remember the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who comes into our lives and enables us to follow the Lord. Now, just a, a few minutes ago, we read from the book of Joel when the day of Pentecost was promised. And you might say, well, on Pentecost, why are you reading about the promise of Pentecost and not the fulfillment of Pentecost? And the answer is because I think sometimes we forget about the time in which we live. You know, the, the, there are believers in the Old Testament and they are saved by faith, just like we are. And, and in order for that faith to be present, we understand that the Holy Spirit was working in them, in, in them, just as the Holy Spirit works in us. And yet, we recognize that after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has been poured out in a new way, in a special way, in a climactic way, which enables us to say, yes, Lord, I will follow you. I will follow where you lead. It doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. We recognize that we're going to continue to sin. If I had to think about how this might work, I, I would think about a runner running a race. 
when I was younger and even more foolish than I am now, I ran cross country for four years. I don't know why I didn't do it once and figure out that that was not fun, but I ran cross country. And, you know, at some point in the race, even if you're in shape, you get to the point where you say, man, I don't want to run anymore. Or you say, at the very least, I don't want to run that fast. But then you remember that the whole purpose of the race is that you run and run fast. And so what do you do? Your mind works and it says, listen legs, listen lungs. I know you don't want to do this, but we're going to do this. And we see that in, a, in an analogous way that the Spirit works within us. As, as uh, circumstances come to us and, and you know, I don't want to be self-controlled. I don't want to do that thing that I know I'm... I'm I should do. Or on the other way, I don't want to not do the thing I'm not supposed to. How, do we, how does that happen? How are we able to do that? The Holy Spirit working within us enables us, sharpens us, helps us, directs us to the Lord so that we can override our natural temptations. How else? How else? By our brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we uh, saw in our Ephesians passage you know, that God has given different people within the church different abilities. And He does so so that they would all use those abilities, so that all would reach maturity. So that no one would be tossed to and fro by the cleverness of men, by, by doctrinal change, but that all would grow up into Christ to be maturity. So look to your right, look to your left, recognize that your brothers and sisters in Christ may very well have found success in the areas where you struggle most. Or that you might have found success in the areas where they struggle the most. And together, by God's Spirit working in both of you, you can grow. What then is the purpose of all of this? Again, the purpose is Paul's purpose. That by our actions, right? By our actions tied with the the words of our faith, we would bring glory to God and serve as a testimony to His greatness in the culture around us. It's a struggle, but by the Holy Spirit working within us, and through our brothers and sisters helping us build up one another in the faith, we are, by God's great power, able to follow. In that way, right, Paul says to Titus, Older men, persevere. Older women, be free from the slavery of wine and gossip. Younger women, express your love for your family in godly action, focused on them. Younger men be diligently self-controlled and do all of this to reflect the glory of God to the ends of the earth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus and we are we praise you that we are forgiven by his blood as we will celebrate momentarily. We pray that your spirit would work within us. We pray that it would guide us and direct us and enable us to grow in our obedience to you, 
not as the basis for our righteousness, but as the good and right outflowing of it. We again pray all of this in the name of our Redeemer. Amen.